Well, good evening. My name is Brian Parks, and I am the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to be back in the pulpit after three really wonderful weeks of getting to hear uh, Pastor Mark Donald preach from the book of Daniel, but I'm really excited to take us back into the book of Acts. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in England in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted, though, by an older minister who stood up and said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He'll do it without consulting you or me. Now, sadly, this older pastor was arguing that there was no need to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. The Bible teaches the opposite. When the Lord wants to save people who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, He almost always sends people to do it. Fortunately, that young pastor wasn't discouraged by the unbiblical rebuke that he received on that day. And he went on to write tracts, arguing that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians in all times, and he rebuked those who ignored it. In 1792, that man also organized a missionary society, and within a year, he and others were on a ship bound for India, where they would spend their lives sharing the gospel. His name was William Carey, and he's considered the father of modern missions in the church in the West. But he certainly wasn't the first missionary. The first missionaries are actually written about in the pages of our Bible in the book of Acts. Turn with me if you have your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're picking back up again. Or you can follow along in your bulletin if you don't have your Bible with you. You'll be helped to follow along. It's a lot of verses, 52 verses. You might have noticed that Jason Thomas, who is our service leader this evening, didn't read all of it. He left out a portion of it just because it's so long. I will be preaching on all of it, though, this evening, so you'll want to follow along. And as we go through chapter 13 of Acts… I want you to see this, that we send missionaries to proclaim the gospel so that God's chosen people believe while others reject it. We send missionaries to proclaim the gospel so that God's chosen people believe while others reject it. If you're not already there, Go ahead and turn there. Now that we're jumping back into Acts, it might be helpful just to refresh your memory about it. The book of Acts in the New Testament is the story of what happened to Jesus' followers after His crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection, and His return to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the short answer to that question of what happened is that the church was born. The church was born. So, the Acts is largely the story of the birth and growth of the church, 
in the first few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. We've been studying through Acts, and now we begin again at chapter 13. And that's our usual pattern here at Covenant Hope Church, to preach through whole books of the Bible so that we learn what unique things the Lord wants to teach us through each one of these 66 books in the Bible. They'll all add something unique and important to what God wants to say to us. So we, we want to hear all of it. That's why we go through all of it as much as we can. Now, chapter 13 in Acts represents a new phase in God's plan for the good news of the gospel of Jesus to be proclaimed throughout the world. In fact, you can kind of divide the book of Acts right at the beginning of chapter 13. Chapters 1 through 12 represent one phase, and then chapters 13 through 28 represent the final phase. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told His disciples that they would receive the Holy Spirit and be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And that statement of Jesus is like a table of contents for the book of Acts. And so, in chapter 2, the church is established in Jerusalem, and we see it grow through chapters 3 through 7. And then in chapter 8, because of persecution, Christians from Jerusalem are spread throughout Judea and Samaria, and we see churches begin to grow in those places as well. And now here in chapter 13, there's a shift a shift where the church begins sending the gospel to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus had commanded them. Now, it's really clear as we read through the book of Acts that even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, that God is really the one who's in charge of all this happening. He's the one driving the growth of the church. And there are lots of things that are happening in these intervening years before we get to chapter 13 that prepare the way for the gospel to begin being taken to the ends of the earth. You know, it's just like God to do that. He does things over long stretches of time. And even now, I think that He's probably preparing in you and I and through our church even to do things that He has planned to do years from now. And so it's important that we follow Him now so that we can be a part of what He wants to do through us in the future. One of those things that He's doing is He's preparing specific people for this new phase in Acts chapter 13. And so He introduces to us in these first 12 chapters two key characters who are going to play an important role from 13 onward to the end of the book of Acts. In chapter 4, we were introduced to a man named Barnabas. He sold a field and he laid money at the apostles' feet. He was a godly and generous Jew who's from the island of Cyprus off the coast of Syria. We don't hear much about Barnabas then other than in chapter 4. Then in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we learn about a Jewish Pharisee named Saul who's persecuting Christians, but in chapter 9, God miraculously converts him and he becomes a Christian. He actually switches sides. Another important thing that's happening in these 12 chapters leading up to chapter 13 is there is an evolution, a change in 
the church leaders and the church's understanding of the gospel. Gradually, the Holy Spirit is giving them new understanding about what Jesus had taught in the gospel. And one of the most important things that's happened, that had to happen before the gospel could be taken to the ends of the earth, is that Peter leads a Gentile Roman centurion, Cornelius, to Christ. The church leaders in Jerusalem then realize the stunning truth that God intends for the gospel to be preached to Gentiles, not just Jews. That's what they believed prior to chapters 10 and 11 in Acts. The gospel is for everyone, they suddenly realize, male or female, no matter what your religious background, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter what your ethnic heritage is. Jesus saves anyone who repents and trusts in Him. And the power of Jesus to save all kinds of people is demonstrated when a particular church forms in the multi-ethnic and cosmopolitan city of Antioch in Syria. You see, another important thing that God is doing is He's raising up particular churches to accomplish particular tasks. The church is made up there in Antioch of Gentiles and Jews. It's one of the first of its kind. The people there are from different countries, they're from different ethnic backgrounds, and it's that church from which the Lord chooses to send out the first missionaries. The church in Antioch is the setting as chapter 12 ends right there in verse 25. We're going to pick up that verse 25 because it provides a transition for us into chapter 13. And from that church, we see that missionaries are set apart and sent. That's the first of three points this evening in the sermon. Missionaries are set apart and sent. We see that in that tail end verse of chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 13, verse 4. In verse 25, Barnabas and Saul who had been sent to teach the church in Antioch. Barnabas had been sent from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And after he had worked there for a while, he realized there was more going on there than he could handle. And so he went to Tarsus and he got Paul and brought him back. And together they began to teach the church in Antioch. And they became leaders there. In verse 25, we see that Barnabas and Saul, who had been sent from the church in Antioch to deliver money to the needy church in Jerusalem have now returned to Antioch. And when they return to Antioch, we're told that they bring an assistant with them named John Mark. In verses 1 through 4, the Scripture tells us how it came about that the Lord set apart and sent Saul, Barnabas, and even John Mark, out to carry the gospel to faraway lands. First, Luke tells us about the leaders in the church there at Antioch. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So, five leaders 
this group of five men was very diverse in their ethnicity and their backgrounds. Barnabas was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. Simeon was called Niger, which is Latin for black. And so he very well could have been from sub-Saharan Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is where current-day Libya is on the North African coast. And Menaean happened to have been a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the leader in Galilee who had had John the Baptist beheaded during Jesus' lifetime. And so, Menaean had been evidently a very politically connected man in ancient Palestine. And then there was Saul. What an amazing collection of leaders there in the church in Antioch. Oftentimes, the Lord brings the most unlikely people together in a church. And because they're unlike one another, that oftentimes gets the world's attention. And it uniquely equips them to serve the church. People who are different than one another, loving one another across their differences is a testimony to the power of God and the power of the gospel. You know, we have a unique opportunity here in Covenant Hope Church to be a testimony to the people of Dubai by loving one another across our differences. And all you have to do is look around this room to see that there are differences among us, right? On several occasions when we used to gather after church in the food court of, say, Oasis Center or Ibn Battuta, of course, that was pre-COVID. Those were the days, right? People would come over every once in a while and ask us, who are you people? Why are you together? And we would tell them, we're a church. Brothers and sisters, build friendships with people in the church who are different than you. Make the effort to do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with having friends who are more like you than not, but don't let that be the only kind of people that you build friendships with in the church. And the same idea goes for when you're looking for a church to join. If you're a young couple with children, don't just look for a church that's filled with young couples with children. Jamie Dunlop, in his book, The Compelling Community, says, the eternal purpose of diversity in your local church is to show off the power of the cross. Because the power of the cross is the power to reconcile people who are different. And that is attractive. That is attractive to the world. But you know, ethnic diversity is not the is only one dimension of diversity that we should consider. It's easy to look around this room and see all the ethnic diversity or the nationality diversity that we have in the room, and that's wonderful, a gift from the Lord. But in many places around the world, there just isn't much ethnic diversity. <laughs> but we should also consider other kinds of diversity, age diversity, economic diversity, Diversity in social ability, even. Some of us are very socially adept. Others of us are more awkward. Is our church a place where people who are perhaps more awkward socially welcomed? Do they feel at home? 
There's diversity in cultural backgrounds as well, even among people who are from the same country. Those of you who are married to someone from the same country, I bet you would agree with me that there are differences between you and your spouse. (laughs) When people are different than one another, it represents an opportunity for God to demonstrate the reconciling power of the cross in a church. Pray, pray that we would welcome people different than us in this church. And members, members of Covenant Hope Church, I urge you, build a diverse group of friendships in the church so that the power of the cross would be demonstrated. Now, it goes on in verse 2 to tell us that these leaders, and I believe the whole church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke to them, telling them, quote, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, I don't have time to teach a whole biblical theology of fasting. I'm sure some of you are asking yourself, what is this fasting thing? Should we be doing that? There was only one mandatory fast commanded by God in the Old Testament. It was on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And there's also no specific command in the New Testament to fast, but Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount does give us instructions about when we fast, and so it seems apparent that He would expect us to fast as His followers from time to time. Fasting can be a discipline that focuses our attention on our need for the Lord, which is even greater than our need for food. Fasting isn't magic. When we fast, it doesn't twist God's arm to get what we want, perhaps, and what we're praying for. It doesn't work like that. Now, it could have been that the church in Antioch was specifically seeking direction from the Lord about how to reach Gentiles in faraway places at this specific time when the Lord spoke to them. But I think it's important, perhaps more more so, to note that the command of the Lord that He gives them here is also in keeping with what He's already made clear in earlier chapters about Saul specifically. When Saul was converted to the faith back in chapter 9, the Lord said about him, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so from the very beginning, the very first day that Saul turned to the Lord in repentance and faith. He knew that somewhere down the line, the Lord was going to use him to reach Gentiles. And so he must have been praying, I suspect. When is that time, Lord? When is that time? In addition, we know that Barnabas is from Cyprus, and that's the first place that Barnabas and Saul go to evangelize. And so that makes sense, that he would understand the culture there in that place. Perhaps they were thinking of that. And on top of that, Saul and Barnabas have been church leaders and teachers in a multi-ethnic church that's filled with both Gentiles and Jews, which would have been the demographics of the places that they were going to go to. And so their experiences, their background, prior revelations to them from the Lord fit together with this specific supernatural calling of the Lord 
And that should teach us something as well about discerning different callings in our lives. Certainly, the Lord can supernaturally call us to something. If the Lord appears to you, you should pay attention and listen. (laughs) Please come and tell me about it. I'd like to know. Perhaps the Lord could speak to you or I in a dream or a vision. Certainly, we know that's possible. The Lord can direct us any way He chooses. But I don't think that that's actually normally the way that the Lord leads us. But it's almost always that the ways that the Lord leads us fit together with the natural ways that God has been preparing us, His people, for different acts of service. If you have a sense and a burden for a particular type of service in or through the church, you can ask yourself these questions to help you discern direction and calling. Has God equipped me for this work already? Or do I need to spend an extended period of time getting equipped for this work? Do wise leaders in my life affirm this particular kind of service for me? Is this something for which I need the backing of the whole church? Do I need to be commissioned by the whole church to do what I sense the Lord is calling me to do in service? Or should I just start serving in that way, a way that God seems to have quit me? Perhaps God has given me a heart to to have people in my home and exercise hospitality quite frequently and often. Brothers and sisters, just do it. Just do it. The church's response to the Lord's call here in these few verses is to send two of their most important teachers out with the gospel, and they're obedient. They pray and they fast some more, and then they send them off, commissioning them by laying hands on them. But it's not just the church that's sending them out. Like it says in verse 4, the Holy Spirit was also sending them out through the church. You see the Lord working, don't you? The Lord works through His people and His churches. Saul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, head to the Mediterranean coast, and they sail to Cyprus first, the island of Cyprus, Barnabas' home country. And there we see our message is opposed and believed. That's the second point this evening. Our message is opposed and believed. You can see that in verses 5 through 12. They make their way from the eastern coast of the island of Cyprus to the western coast. And you might notice in your bulletin on page 13, there's a map. Some of you guys will really appreciate maps. My background is mechanical engineering, and I love it when people show me a map. makes me feel like I know where I'm going, even if I don't. And there on the map, you'll see that on the coast of Syria, you see two cities, Antioch and Seleucia, and that first arrow that's numbered one was their journey on a boat to the island of Cyprus. And you see the first city that they land in, Salamis, that arrow takes them from east to west across the island of Cyprus to Paphos. We'll get there here in these next few verses. And then Later in the rest of our passage this evening, 
is their journey on arrow number three. They land on the coast near Italia and Perga, and they eventually get up to the northernmost city there in Galatia near the top of your map, Antioch. It's a different Antioch, of course, than Antioch in Syria. That's where we're going in the passage this evening. And in the sermon next week, we'll see the rest of the journey all the way back to Antioch in Syria. So you can use that as a reference as we go along. Now, when they're on the island of Cyprus, right away we begin to see a pattern in their ministry, which they'll repeat over and over again. Barnabas and Saul and John Mark are Jews, and Jesus came as a Jew. And so it's to Jews that they usually proclaim the gospel first. And so their first stop when they come to a city is typically to go into the synagogue and proclaim the message of the gospel. We'll come back to this pattern in the next section in our passage as well, from verses 13 onward. But in East Cyprus, we're told that they preached the gospel. We're not told what happened. But then Luke, the author of Acts, wants to tell us a lot about what happened in West Cyprus when they got to Paphos. And there it is that they meet a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who is also called Elimus the Magician. They encountered him because Elimus the Magician was some kind of advisor to the Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus. Now, the proconsul is a governor of a Roman territory, and this proconsul was an intelligent man, we're told, and he summoned Saul and Barnabas to tell him personally what they were proclaiming in the synagogues all across this island of Cyprus. He's heard about it, evidently. But Elimus the magician did not like it. He's opposed to it. Look with me at verse 8. It says, but Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, right here in verse 9 then, Luke begins to call Saul, Paul. We don't know exactly why that is, but it's likely that Paul began to go by his Roman name as they moved into areas outside of Palestine and Syria. But Paul rebukes Elimus then with very strong language, filled with the Holy Spirit. He calls him a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness. He says that he's full of all deceit and villainy. And he says that Elimus is making the crooked, the straight paths of the Lord. It's quite a rebuke. In other words, this Elimus guy is opposed to the Lord and the message of salvation. He's standing in the way of the proconsul, perhaps turning to the Lord. And here another pattern is revealed that is going to be repeated over and over and over again in Barnabas and Saul and Paul's ministry. When the gospel is preached, some will oppose it and some will believe it. Some will oppose it and some will believe. The gospel creates a divide between people. Jesus told His disciples that He and His message brought division. He said in Matthew 10, 34-36, Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, 
and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, these are hard words of Jesus to understand. Wasn't it the angels at the birth of Jesus that said, peace on earth and goodwill to men? Well, we know from Jesus' own life and the rest of the narrative in Acts that there are people who will inevitably reject the peace that God is offering them through Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying in these words is that He and His message require a response. You're either drawn to Jesus or you're opposed to Him. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. To be neutral is to reject Him because Jesus says, come follow Me. Jesus will even bring about different responses among family members. Oh, some of you know the pain of this. But in each person's response to Jesus is more important, more important than even their closest relationships in life, even the relationships in their family. This is still true today, brothers and sisters. We must expect that when we preach or proclaim the gospel, a line will be drawn, and there will be those who oppose us and those who believe the message. Proclaiming the gospel will oftentimes produce some kind of conflict. We must be ready for that. We must not sin against those who oppose us. We're not called to be obnoxious but we also must not bow down to those who oppose the message of the gospel when they tell us, be quiet. No. Are you so convinced of the eternal importance of the message of salvation in Christ that you're willing to have people be mad at you about it? People's eternal salvation is at stake. It's worth it. If we shrink back simply because we fear conflict, we're not being faithful. Jesus said, he who is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed when I come in my glory. Strong words for us. Pray for courage, brothers and sisters. Pray for the courage given by the Holy Spirit, just like Paul was filled with when he confronted Elimus the magician. Now, a part of Paul's Spirit-inspired rebuke of Elimus is the miraculous blinding that Paul produces in him. And the Lord worked all of this together in this particular situation to bring about the salvation of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Look at verse 12 with me. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't just that Elimus the magician had been struck blind and was wandering around needing someone to lead him. It was the teaching of the Lord that dawned on Sergius Paulus. It's true about this Jesus, and he believed. They began preaching in the synagogues to Jews, but in the end, the Roman proconsul was the one who had been chosen by God, appointed to believe here on the island of Cyprus. 
How would Barnabas and Paul have ever known that their faithful preaching on Cyprus would result in the Roman proconsul, the governor of Cyprus, giving his life to Christ? (laughs) We preach, we share the gospel, we pray, we invite, we pursue, but in the Lord, in the end, the Lord is sovereign over who turns to Him in faith. We work, but the Lord is ultimately the one working through us to accomplish His purposes in salvation. Now, the rest of the passage follows Barnabas and Paul as they sail from Cyprus, then north to the coast of what is Turkey today. And they make their way all the way to the city of Antioch in Pisidia. It's here that Luke records a sermon of Paul for the first time. This is the first recorded sermon of Paul that we hear. And there in Antioch, Pisidia, we see opposition and belief happen again, but also that our message is the fulfillment of God's promises. That's the third point this evening. Our message is the fulfillment of God's promises. We see that in verses 13 all the way to the end of chapter 13, verse 52. In 13 through 15, it sets the stage as Barnabas and Saul make their way to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they're invited to bring a word of encouragement to the crowd that's assembled. You might have also noticed that there's one brief sentence at the end of verse 13 which tells us that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's really insignificant in our particular passage, but it will be significant later on when there's a sharp disagreement that arises between Barnabas and Paul about the trustworthiness of John Mark. So, tuck that away in your mind. Then in verses 16 through 41 is Paul's sermon in the synagogue, and it can be broken down into three sections. First, he talks about the history of God's promises to Israel. Second, he tells them all about Jesus being the fulfillment of those promises. And lastly, he concludes with the offer of salvation along with a warning. So, in verses 16 through 25, the history of promises are covered by Paul. He briefly recounts how God chose ancient Israel's ancestors to be His people, caused them to grow into a mighty nation, and rescued them from Egypt. That's actually Genesis and Exodus in one sentence. And then He put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years, God did, and finally He took them into the promised land and He led them to conquer all the nations there. He gave them judges and finally a king, first in Saul, and then one one much more faithful in King David. In verse 23, Paul gets straight to the point and he tells them that as promised, God has sent someone who is a descendant of David who is Israel's Savior, and His name is Jesus. John the Baptist wasn't the Messiah, but pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. That's the history of God's promises. The next section is how Jesus has fulfilled all those promises. Look at verse 26 there for just a moment with me. 
brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation, or the message of this salvation. The news about Jesus is a message of salvation. It's not just a message about a man. It's about a man and why He came and what He did and what it means for you and I. And so Paul recounts that Jesus wasn't recognized by the leaders, but instead condemned, executed, and buried. And then in verses 30 through 37, Paul spends much of his breath arguing that Jesus has been raised from the dead as predicted by the Scriptures. And so he mentions eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And then he goes to various Old Testament verses to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and would be raised from the dead, that His body would not see corruption. Now, it's worth stopping for just a moment to think about how important the resurrection is to the gospel message. You know, when you're explaining the gospel message to people, don't forget to tell them that Jesus was raised from the dead and is alive even now. Oftentimes, when we elders in Covenant Hope Church have an elder chat with someone, when he asks them to recount the gospel to us in very brief form, the resurrection is left out so oftentimes. People are very eager to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but forget about the resurrection. Now, I know they know about the resurrection oftentimes. I usually when they finish telling me the gospel, I usually ask them, and where is Jesus now? Is He still in the grave? And almost always they know He's resurrected, He's alive. Don't forget the resurrection. Don't forget the resurrection because the resurrection validates everything that Jesus did on the cross and said about Himself. And it provides for us the promise for our resurrection. Oh, it's so important to the gospel, brothers and sisters. Lastly, Paul concludes with an offer of salvation through faith in Christ and a warning about rejecting it. And that's worth reading again. Look with me at verses 38 through 41. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by Him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This is Paul's first recorded sermon outlining the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Did you notice what Paul said about what Jesus offers compared to what trying to follow the law offers there, the law of Moses? Faith in Jesus offers you and I forgiveness of sins. They're gone. They're wiped away when you trust in Jesus. They're not counted against you both the ones you know about and the ones you've unknowingly committed. And then he contrasts that with what the law of Moses cannot do, trying to be righteous 
and to be accepted by God by obeying the rules and regulations of the Old Testament will ultimately fail. You can't do it. You'll only find condemnation if you try to earn your salvation, if you try to do enough good deeds to make God happy with you. Salvation, forgiveness, joyful union with the God who made you can only happen by trusting in Jesus who died in your place on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. Jesus, who lived a perfect sinless life of love and obedience so that you and I could receive His righteousness as a free gift through faith, faith alone. Trying to obey the law to be righteous before God will not result in eternal life. It won't. But the resurrected Jesus can give that to you, anyone who believes in Him. This is the message of salvation. It was true in Paul's day, and it's still true now. Will you believe it? Or will you reject it? Remember, neutrality is not an option. Neutrality is rejection. Paul quotes an Old Testament passage then from the book of Habakkuk to warn the Jews of Antioch. It essentially says, if you scoff at this message, if you don't believe this message sent from God, you will perish. If you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of resurrection to eternal life, you can do that now, today, tonight. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to Him. I urge you to heed the warning. On that day in Antioch, there were a number of Jews and Jewish converts who believed the message of salvation that they preached that day in the synagogue. Paul and Bartimaeus urged them to continue in the grace of God. But the crowd, the whole crowd, wanted to hear more, and so they reassembled a week later at the synagogue, but this time the whole city had come to hear what Paul was preaching. And then the real divisions began. Many of the Jews, when they saw the crowds, were jealous of Paul. And so they began to oppose him. They began to revile him. They began to disagree with him. And with that, both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and quoted a passage from Isaiah the prophet foretelling that the Messiah would come into the world, not just for Jews, but to save the Gentiles too. And look at the result in verses 48 and 49 with me. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises. Promises originally given to Israel, but promises for you and me as well. We're Gentiles. And what Jesus did on the cross and in His resurrection is for us, just as much as it was for them. 
This is one of those many verses, verse 48, that illustrates convincingly that God is sovereign and in control in salvation. We call people to make a decision about Jesus, just like I just did just a few minutes ago. And you must decide to put your faith in Christ. But God is the one who chooses, just like He chose Abraham, just like He chose King David, and just like He chose His only Son to be sent into the world to live and to die and to rise again for us. Despite the conflict that inevitably comes when the gospel is preached, we can be confident that God will save those He's appointed. And this is why we can confidently send missionaries to faraway places to share the gospel, because the Lord will surely have people there that He's appointed for eternal life. That's the same confidence that's something that you and I can have and hold on to as we pray and we work to share the gospel with our family and our friends here in Dubai. God has appointed some people to eternal life. And when we share the gospel with them, they will believe. Paul and Barnabas were ultimately driven out of Antioch by the angry Jews and those whom they stirred up, the leading women and leaders of Galatia and the area around Pisidia, Antioch. But Paul and Barnabas weren't discouraged, no. Even Jesus told His disciples to shake the dust off your feet when a town rejects you as a symbol that you're moving on to share the gospel elsewhere. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did that day. But surely they went away with even greater confidence in the sovereign work of the Lord to save. There were joyful Christians now in Antioch, Pisidia, filled with the Spirit and seeking to live for Christ. We want to be the kind of church back in Antioch in Syria that sent out Paul and Barnabas. We want to be that kind of church too. Might the Lord use Covenant Hope Church to raise up people to go out from here to share the gospel in faraway places, perhaps even the lands that you have originally come from? Might God be using what you're learning in sermons week after week, month after month, year after year here in Covenant Hope Church to prepare you to understand the gospel so well that you would be equipped to be a person like Paul and Barnabas, to go, to be commissioned even by us? We want to be that kind of church that sends missionaries out too, to proclaim the gospel to the nations to see God's chosen people believe, even knowing that there will be people who oppose it. You know, later this spring, we're going to be sending Mario Peter back to India after having him come through our pastoral intern program. We hope he's better equipped for ministry, of course, there back in India. And we're also sending out Jason and Sarah Thomas, who since have sensed over a long period of time a desire and a calling to go and be church planters in India as well. And so, Jason and Sarah are going to be going off 
to uh, England to study in a seminary there, a Bible college, for about three years, and then eventually, hopefully, make their way back to India and begin planting churches. In many ways, Jason and Sarah will be some of those first people that we'll lay hands on and send off from our own, people who we love, people who are incredibly fruitful in this church. Oh, brothers and sisters, you don't know. I've been thinking about what holes they're going to leave when they go. But just like the church in Antioch and Syria sent off some of their best, it's appropriate that we send off Jason and Sarah. We want to be this kind of church. Let's pray. Let's walk in obedience here in Dubai together so that God might use us, not only here in this place, but in faraway lands as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are so gracious as to use us, sinners, redeemed by what You did on the cross, to proclaim a gospel, a, a message of salvation. Lord, I pray that You would stiffen our spine for the times when we proclaim the gospel and people oppose us, when conflict's created. We also pray, Lord, that You would help us be joyful even as we proclaim this gospel that is the fulfillment of all the promises that You've given. In Christ's name we pray, amen.